Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. Hiya, Paul. Here we are again. Uh, time for the episode about the album Rio. I can't wait. Well, do you know, I, I know you and I have been talking about this before recording, and I'm really excited about this. I've loved listening back through, listening to the album and about walking at the gym, driving, sitting in the house. And I mean, it's as good, if not better, than I remember it from back in the day when I first got it. And we have talked about it in every single episode, but this music just so evokes the memories, doesn't it? But, um, you know, like you, I have been listening to this to this album now on my road trips up to the Lake District, you know, when I've been out walking the dog. And I think it will end up becoming almost like the soundtrack of summer 2021 for me. So, yeah, that's, that's got to be a powerful, good thing. Do you know what? Because I worked out as well that I was about two months short of my 16th birthday when the album came out. And it's, you know, that way it's trying to, it's trying to remember back to, to being that age. So I would have been at the end of what would be in, in Scottish schools fifth year. So I was probably just on the verge of failing quite a lot of exams at that point. So Rio would have been, would have been my consolation as I, I performed abjectly and exam after exam, and then went in my room and just listened to Rio to take my mind off it. Well, I think, yeah, it was, uh, I, I was probably about 12 or 13 I guess when it came out in America, and uh, that would have been my horrible teenage angsty period of, of time. So I would have spent a lot of time sitting in my room, admiring my poster of Roger Taylor on the ceiling. <laughs> See, I had to bring him in straight away before so, you did. Yeah, well, last time you blamed me, so you can't you can't do that this time. No, I'll accept full responsibility this time. So let's talk tonight about Rio, but also we've been having really fabulous responses from some Twitter listeners, just, you know, giving us some feedback about the, the podcast that we've done so far. And funnily enough, they wanted to know a little bit more about us. We're becoming the rock gods that we <laughs> are doing here. That we always dreamt of. Well, do you know, it's funny because uh, somebody had just got in touch with us via Twitter and they actually had said they weren't sure if they had missed the bit where we spoke about how we had got together to, to do this podcast. People might have seen it last week on the Twitter feed that I'd done a blog for the eight albums website, which is 
run by a couple of guys, one of whom is a, a mutual friend, Stephen Keady. And it was him that put us in touch together because I think there's been about 50 or 60 people. And what they do is they choose, you choose your eight, your eight albums that mean the most to you and you're eight a wee bit about them. And I think of all the people, uh, you and I are the only two that chose uh, Duran Duran and coincidentally Duran Duran's Rio album. It's astounding because, you know, we are probably of, a, of an age generation. I think Steve is just a little bit younger than us, but surely as music lovers and with that many music lovers that have, have contributed so far to eight albums, that there would have been more of us that have, would select Duran Duran. So I don't know, maybe it just speaks to the fine taste that we have, Paul. <laughs> but have you, have you seen a listing of, of the, the sorts of people that have contributed to eight albums? I feel in quite distinct company because Ian Rankin has even given done his his list of eight albums so I think it's pretty impressive and maybe this will just kind of open up avenues for for people just to go hmm, yeah I just remember Duran Duran to be this pretty boy pop band maybe I'll give another listen to it and, and realize that they are the fine musicians that we all know and love. Well on that Stephen Keady who we were mentioning who runs this eight albums website. And I say, I think it's, it's well worth checking out actually, because I've discovered some new music from people's recommendations. It's been great. But Stephen, because he'd put us together to start this podcast and, you know, he's had a listen to the episodes as well. I think he started listening, certainly listened to the first album and was complimentary of one or two songs. Well, I think that's probably just uh, Steve's payback to me because he has always been a massive Oasis fan. And I've always just ripped them to shreds about that one because they're just a, a Beatles cover band anyways. Yeah, I like Oasis as well, actually. Yeah, but I noticed on your list that uh, you're also a Beatles fan, so props to you on that one. And you've contributed um, a blog post to that, haven't you, as well, about the link between that website and us. Yeah, basically just explaining how this uh, podcast came to be born, really. But um, to go back to you know some of the, the comments that the, the listeners have posted into us, our friend Scott from uh, West Point, he was uh, giving us a lot of interesting information about our challenge and our chat around instrumentals in Tel Aviv, uh, which I found really interesting. And what that made me do is I went out to find that version of Tel Aviv with the lyrics to it. And I have to say, I can see why they went with the instrumental. See, the thing is, I don't disagree with you, but my caveat that even with the new tune, they should have still stuck some lyrics on it. I'll never change my mind on that. So shall we just uh, crack on with, uh, let's talk about Rio, our, our favourite album. The notes that I have here, it was released in uh, on the 10th of May, 1982 in the UK. But then it wasn't until November 1982 that the remixed and re-release was put out over in America. One of the things that I found quite interesting was the UK release was produced by a guy called Colin Thurston, who was a mega producer for the likes of David Bowie and Iggy Pop. So, you know, he had some real strong credentials and that sort of thing. And then when it got to trying to get it released out to the American market, they were really trying to put a, they're trying to move Duran Duran away from the New Romantics label because that was a very British tag. So they wanted to, to kind of promote Duran Duran to be this dancey kind of band. So they got David Kirschenbaum in to remix probably three quarters of the album, I think, that he ended up doing uh, to try to appeal to the the clubby dance market in America. Because it's interesting, well, obviously the fact that both the US and the UK versions still had the, the same track listing, which is good. 
because obviously there was a difference with the with the first album that we talked about. And also, I was just going to say that this podcast is actually going to go out on the 39th anniversary of the actual release, which is just a, a wonderful coincidence. But I, I always I always find it quite curious that, you know, the fans in America and the fans in the UK we end up loving the same band and the same music and the same songs and probably now it's evolved so we're kind of both both sides of the Atlantic listening to the same music but at the time when they maybe Duran Duran found it easier to become established over here but they maybe had to slightly tweak their sound and then that with obviously MTV behind them and all the videos they kind of conquered America I suppose probably even more than they did the UK. Yeah I think so I remember back in the day it just it was just absolute zeitgeist I think that's the right word it was the second British invasion of music we had Beatlemania back in the uh, 60s and everything went quiet in America you just had your American pop rock going on uh, during that course and then bam you know come in in the early 80s and and Duran Duran were just like whoosh they opened the floodgates and then then you know with MTV like you said that was a major seller, I think, for Duran Duran into the American market because they were just so visual. And, you know, I've, I've commented it on previous episodes that each member of Duran Duran had a particular look so they could appeal to that much broader of an audience, really, because, you know, you might be a favorite of Simon's suntanned bad boy look, or you could be really into Andy's guitar greatness, really. Just before we get we, we start talking about the, the track by track, I got this book last week called Duranalysis, Essays on the Duran Duran Experience by Mor- Morgan Richter. And, and apologies to Morgan if I've mispronounced her surname. And it's really kind of hard, like a series of essays just about the Duran Duran phenomenon. She's, she's an American fan as well. So I was just going to read this wee bit. It's just all about, it kind of sets up Duran Duran, that clash with what came before. Because it kind of sums up what happened with them in the 80s. So I was just going to read this. So Morgan writes, The Sex Pistols formed in London in 1976 howled for anarchy in the UK. The Clash formed in London in 1977 voiced dark fears of looming civil war. Discharge formed in Stoke-on-Trent in 1977 called for fighting corrupt systems. The Exploited formed in Edinburgh in 1979 protested the death of prospects for a better future. Duran Duran, formed in Birmingham in 1978, sang about cherry ice cream smiles and paradisical one-night stands, and they sang this while looking fabulous in pastel silk and cavorting with leggy models on yachts or while strolling on white beaches under violent skies and far-off lands. The punk crowd despised them. Go figure. And I thought, that sums it up, because I've, I've I've seen a few interviews, like, you know, that way when you get music shows looking back in the 80s and you have some of the kind of right-on artists of the time that were maybe more, certainly in the UK, politically to the left, were very anti-Thatcher and there's a whole kind of movement. You know, their songs were reflecting a lot of the kind of social things that were going on at the time. Duran Duran seemed to them, they're almost like, not hate figures, but they do seem to epitomise everything that was wrong with that kind of greed is good type culture that was that was prevalent at the time. I always think it was a kind of, you know, not every band is ever political. And I thought they just were a pop band that were having a good time and, and I always liked that. From what I understand, it was an absolute deliberate act of theirs to be the antithesis to the punk movement because you know it's like you said, there were all the issues with Thatcherism and and that sort of thing. And it was about the time of the Falkland War. Things were just pretty downbeat and 
angsty, I guess. And along come these five guys in Birmingham, like, hey, let's let's just be light and cheery and colorful. And, you know, I think it definitely pepped up the, the musical landscape. And thank God for that. Really, I think it was probably what was needed for the times of just really heavy, real life, have a bit of escapism going on. But I think you can have both. I mean, it's like I said to you before, I think you can like, for example, I always think the Smiths and Duran Duran, that's a big contrast in terms of musical styles. I think you can like both of them. I remember the song, I think Elvis Costello did a version of it, Shipbuilding, which was a very much anti-war, anti-Falklands war song, which is an absolute classic. I think you can like that and still like real. I don't see a contradiction in that. I think it's just, you have to have a balance. Yeah, I suppose it's just like the the human psyche. Oh, let's get really deep and heavy here. But, you know, <laughs> you have different sides to, to your personality. So, you know, if, if you get out of the wrong side of the bed, you might want to listen to some Smiths or some Clash, or you've had a really good night's sleep and the sun is shining and you want to listen to a bit of uh, Saber Prayer. You can do it all. There doesn't have to be any rules. Exactly. One, one last thing I wanted to just talk about, about the album in general. One of the things, and again, I go back to how I'm a very visual person. The album artwork for Rio was just so, to me, that defined the 80s for me. It was um, a guy by the name of Patrick Nagel. I think that's how you say his surname. And he, he did that stylized female picture that, that you see on the cover of the album. And then I think he, he went on to have showings at galleries and that sort of thing. But it became so, the colors black and silver, and Patrick Nagel artwork, just that is the 80s to me. It, it just, it speaks that it's, it's a timeless piece of art, both musically and the, uh, the visuals. Nice link there. <laughs> Excellent. Shall we crack on with the track listing then? Let's go for it. So the first track that I had listed um, was the eponymous Rio. What are your thoughts on that one then? You know that way every time I'm listening to the album now, and I keep thinking how... The first track's always really important to me, and then I'm, I'm always listening to them in chronological order. And then I'm thinking, I wonder how you're listening to, to the album, or whether you just, especially because Rio kind of, you know that way even now, if you listen to it on one of the streaming services, there's still a wee bit of you that thinks, because it, it first it starts playing, but there's nothing there until it slowly builds, and you're thinking, I wonder if it's, start, if it's is it working? So I wonder if at that point you, you flick ahead of it. I love that song. I think it's that is the song that probably for me epitomizes, you know, what we're saying about Duran Duran in the eighties, especially the video with the I, I know I talk about the lyrics that I love that bit at the end with the like sailing on the yacht. And it's just like do 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 I, I think that's just that is just absolute fun. I also think in the last episode we kind of spoke quite a lot about the guitars, the drums, the keyboards. I think in Rio, I think you saw a real step up in Simon's vocals. I think they were really strong in terms of his singing throughout the whole album. Because the thing I always think is funny as well about Rio, there's the, the saxophone solo, which is such a, an 80s I thing. I have this thing that the, the whole batch of saxophones fell off the back of a lorry and someone sold them to all these bands in the early 80s. So every sort of like Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, everybody had... ABC, they all had saxophones on their records. So for a, there was a period in the 80s where if you could play a saxophone, you were making a fortune in pop music. And when pop music changed in the 80s, all these saxophonists were, were suddenly unemployed. But I think that's a great, it's a great, great song. I agree. And exactly like what you said, 
Simon's voice is just, I think, fine as on this album, you know, that will have been one of the, the elements that pulled me in um, because he, he just had a brilliant, upbeat, great tone to his voice. It was just so good. And, and then the video, you know, to go back to, to what we were saying earlier about, you know, it was kind of the downbeat 80s and there they are on a yacht in their ice cream colored suits and bouncing away and, and living the dream that I think from what I understand probably was not the norm for the, the UK population to go abroad for those sorts of holidays. So it was very much aspirational, I think. So, so yeah, as a teenage girl, I was just like, wow, go away to exotic places like that and dance on yachts. Sign me up, please. Because the thing I always think is, you know, and I'm going to mention it again later on in one of the other songs about how young they are, but either them or the management were really savvy in terms of they got that it wasn't just the music. It was everything. The, the kind of You mentioned the artwork of the album, the way they dressed, how they presented themselves in videos. And obviously it coincided with MTV launching. But at the same time, I think they got the fact that you were selling yourself as well in terms of as a product, I suppose. Ultimately, it was the music that backed everything up. I thought they were probably ahead of their time in terms of, as you say, if you're watching it on TV and there's this, you know, it's bright, it's visual, it's, there's things going on that kind of immediately catches your attention. Absolutely. I think not only were they, you know, just the great musicians, but they were great marketers of themselves. They, they, they knew, they just had the right eye on the prize, I think, for, for that time. And, and, the, and they just plugged right into it. And, and then, you know, it, it had to have been like a marriage made in heaven when uh, MTV hooked up with, with Duran Duran. Who knows, you know, if either of them would have gone on to be as long lasting as either one of them have been without the other. You know, I think it's been a very important relationship between the two of them. Certainly, I think, from speaking to you and then speaking to other people in the States, it was definitely that's what made them in, in the States. But again, going back to the way that they were maybe perceived then and now here, again, I think it was... You could still be political and politically on the left in the UK and be against Thatcher and all the, the terrible, divisive things she did to our country and to the rest of the UK as well and still uh, listen to Duran Duran. I don't see the contradiction. And the other question I was, well, question I was going to ask you right when I was listening to this is, and, and there might not be an answer, and if, if anybody has the answer, they can, they can get in touch with us. Who is real and why is she dancing on the sand? I wrote that down. I thought, that's, I'm curious about that. Oh, I don't know. I always, I always attribute all this sort of stuff as Simon was always a bit of a stud muffin in my eyes. So I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure Rio had to be been one of his girlfriends. <laughs> that is not based in any fact that I have found anywhere. I've never seen any discussion about it. But uh, yeah. Well, listen. I know we're only we're only one track in, but I think again, when people ask me what my highlight of this uh, episode <laughs> is, it's been you called Simon the Boy a stud muffin. <laughs> and, and yeah I, I just don't have another word for him that's what he is even though roger's my one true love <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing i can add to that molly let's move on on, on that <laughs> <laughs> so i'm being um purist this week with following the track listing in order um rather than how i might have put it together on my spotify playlist so hopefully <laughs> i'm I'm pleasing you all on this one. So uh, the next track was My Own Way, 
And apparently my interesting facts on this one were that it's never appeared on any of the Duran Duran compilations. And apparently it was released as a single before the album was released, kind of as a segue between the two albums. Well, do you know, it's funny because, because obviously the, the album version is different from the single. And the, I think the album version is much better. But I didn't realise, again, till we were just kind of looking through this, that there's been various interviews with the band weren't massive fans of this song. You know, I've, I've seen a couple of interviews with John Taylor and I think maybe Nick Rhodes. It's not one of their favourite songs. I don't know if it was ever released as a single over in America. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I've, I've just never really thought much about it. I just thought it was an album track. Never really want, it stood out for me when there are so many good tunes on this record. Yeah, that one's probably rather low on my list of favorites within the real <laughs> album. However, one of my favorites on this album is the next one, Lonely in Your Nightmare. What do you think to that one, Paul? You know, it was interesting uh, in the last episode, Scott Parsons had that as in his top three. I love the start of the song with just the, the kind of guitar riff, quite simple. And I suppose the harmonies and the chorus as well. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful song. There's one or two songs, well, in fact, there's more than one or two songs on Rio that could easily have been singles. I think this is this is one of them. And I think this is, when you have songs of that quality on the album and, and they don't become the singles, then you realise it's it's a great album. I think that's a stunning song, actually. I, I do as well. Um, it just, it's so kind of melancholy, but still has a, a lovely beat to it. And And I just remember, I think probably I would have, listen to it, stop the tape, rewound, listen to it, stop the tape, rewound. I would listen to that song on a loop. I just, it was, again, to go back to my navel-gazing teenage years, that one spoke to me. And I was always so, so angsty about things like, oh, Simon, he understands. I am so lonely. <laughs> How scary is this? Uh, an insight to a teenage girl's mind. That's just why, you know, you were saying, because I would listen to, obviously, in the vinyl, which I have, at my side as we're talking. And it's much easier, you know, if you want to just play the same song over again, just to lift the needle, drop it back in the wee groove, rather than having to rewind to try and find the starting point. Vinyl is always much, just much easier for that. And in reality, now that we have the cloud and CDs, it's even easier. You can listen to whichever track you want. You can even put it on a loop. Well, do you know, it's funny because because obviously this is just an audio podcast, but then before we started, I did show you, and I'm going to do it again, I've shown you my cover of the Rio album. Do you know, I'm actually tempted, although it's a wee bit battered, I thought this would be great if I could frame it and just hang it up in my, my kind of wee office room. So I'm, I'm thinking of doing that. But you obviously, you, but you've embraced the 21st century technology when it comes to music. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing. I don't hold any CDs or anything. Like I said, I have everything on the cloud. But with, at my work, um, we have regular zoom calls and that sort of thing for our for our meetings and one of the the bigger bosses has albums framed and lined around his office and he he moves them around and he switches them up and things like that so we'll have a little discussion and say oh so what have you got hanging on the walls today so you know it's a definite design feature and can inspire lots of chat yeah i think i'm going to do it actually but it means you'll have to sacrifice all of your album covers and put them on the wall no, I was just, just real, I wanted. So I can still, I've still got the inner sleeve with the vinyl. No, I was just real, because I think real, as you mentioned already, I think that's such an iconic image. 
I think I mentioned in previous podcasts that um, back in the day, the local record store would always save all the promotional material for Duran Duran for me. And I had a lot of cutouts and things like that. I think, um, yeah, it's a shame I got rid of those. But then I think probably as a <clears throat> something age woman these days, it would be <laughs> a little bit weird if I had cardboard cutouts of an 80s pop band on my wall. Recapturing a lost youth. Yeah, it's called a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> right, so now, and now I'm thinking twice about framing my album cover in case, in case people think I'm having a midlife crisis. No way. Album covers are, are fine. I think that's totally respectable. Cardboard cutouts of the band, not so much. <laughs> Fair enough. So the next track, track number four, Hungry Like the Wolf. Now, that was the biggie, I think, um, over in America. I think that was really what kicked things off. Again, for me, it, w- it was the video. It was the exotic location. It was just the animal magnetism of Simon Le bon. Again, you know, it's all there in the song title. And, and, I, and I feel like it was, that was a real collaboration between Simon and his vocals and his vibe. And then Nick, I think the, the whole Rio album is where Nick was able to play around and grow as a producer and a mixer. I think he was involved in a lot of the production of it all. And uh, yeah, it just all seemed to, to merge and form of this perfect package of Hungry Like the Wolf. I was curious, particularly for this song, because I think one of the first conversations that you and I ever had, we were talking about it, and that was, because that was always in my head, that was a song that you mentioned that obviously stuck with you in the video, and I think that is the song that, that kind of made them these global superstars. I think so, and again, it, they were so canny about things um it was russell mulcahy who who did that who directed the video and um you know he he shipped him out he he said himself that he was he was a a wannabe feature filmmaker and uh back at that time nobody knew who he was so all he was getting budget for were four minutes uh, on promotional videos so you know he obviously got the gig for for doing this duran duran video took him out to sri lanka and they ended up doing three videos over the course of, I think they were out there for about a week. And boy, I think he really set his stamp by doing those videos. And it, again, it was aspirational. You know, who back in that day and age were cavorting halfway across the world on crystal white beaches and playing around on elephants? I wasn't. <laughs> no, no, there wasn't really many people in Scotland doing that either. Not even at the elephant farm <laughs> in, in Glasgow? <laughs> I'm sure that many, many people uh, over the years, that's the only Duran Duran song I've ever sang at karaoke. It was a works night out and one of the guys in work, it was his first work night out. He hadn't joined, he hadn't long been with us. So I think he was trying to ingratiate himself with the boss. So obviously knew I liked Duran Duran. So I ended up singing a duet with him and it was great. It was great fun. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I've no idea. Well, karaoke by its very nature usually sounds awful in the cold light day but you know at the time it's great fun but it was a that was a real karaoke highlight for me did you imagine that you were Simon Le bon in the moment no but <laughs> but I did I must admit I had an absolute blast singing it because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have necessarily put myself forward to sing that but then when we did get up and it was it was wonderful and everybody seemed to I think it's like if there is a secret to good karaoke, it's getting a song that everybody kind of likes and start singing and joining in. And then they're not really listening to you. 
that's the, that's the beauty of it. And so everybody was up dancing to that song, which had nothing to do with my singing. And you know, going back to this, the the song itself, I bet you that you could probably play that tune. 95% of the world and they will be able to recognize that's Duran Duran. They may not know another song from them, but I think Hungry Like the Wolf has just been ingrained into any human alive. I think it's absolutely true. People would recognize that that's, that's who even their educated guests would be because it is so Duran Duran. It was also the sort of song that it was able to showcase each of the, the band members' talents. I think Andy's guitar, it really does show what a proper musician I know that sounds a little bit derogatory, but he, he was a proper guitarist. And I think it, it definitely has shown on that single. Maybe not such of a, a front man in a video, but, you know, when it comes to the music itself, he rocked. Well, you know, it's interesting that, and I, I think I'd sent you a thing, that there was a thing that was on Sky Arts or BBC Four. I think you can still get it on YouTube, classic albums, and they go through Rio. And what was really interesting was, to what you're saying is, I think when they went out to Sri Lanka or Antigua, wherever it was they were going, Nick and Andy were late arriving because they'd stayed on to do the final remix on the album, which kind of, they were, you you know, you already mentioned how Nick was really getting involved in the kind of production side. Andy is the, is the musician and, and they were, I suppose, fine-tuning that sound of what we ended up hearing on the final finished version. And I love the story that Nick tells about that because, you know, he was the one that was like vampire white with, he wore the makeup and that sort of thing. And he, he was telling the story that uh, he got off the plane, totally decked out in black leather, all of his full face makeup and everything like that walks out into the sauna that is Sri Lanka. Yeah, it just makes me think of, you know, watching the video when him and John are sitting on the elephant and the elephant rears back and, and splashes him with water. I can just imagine Nick Rhodes in his head going, but my hair, my hair. <laughs> That's not away from his, you know, his, his brilliant musicmanship. But yeah, it, it just, poor guy. He looked like such a fish out of water in those videos that were filmed over there. Okie dokie. So if we move on to track number five, Hold Back the Rain. Again, it was, that was another one that, that I really enjoyed because it's just real good, good pace to it all. It's kind of similar to like, my own way which is it's a decent track but I think because the standard of some of the other songs is just at a level which is just totally elevated that I don't think Hold Back the Rain quite you know is quite up there with Rio or Hungry Like the Wolf or you know Lonely in Your Nightmare or, or the other songs we'll talk about this is one of the ones where what sticks in my mind is the, is the drumming Roger's drumming that's really distinctive particularly towards you know the songs building towards the end that really sticks out. And I think whenever they do play it live, I think it's a really great song to play live. It's funny you should say that because I saw a, a, an interview with John Taylor and he hates playing this song live um, because apparently, and I, I know nothing about bass playing, but there's one portion of it he plays uh, with just his fingers plucking, I guess. And then another part of the song requires a pick. Um, and when they were recording the track, they could do it on uh, two tracks. So he could, you know, he could do his, his one bit and then, you know, stop, pick up the pick and then, and, and then carry on doing the rest of the song. So I don't know. He, he's obviously found a trick to how to, to manage that one when, he, when they play it live. But he actually said that he feels like it's an absolute bitch to play. <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing is, once you're playing live as well, you've got 10, 20,000 fans 
I don't think anybody's going to be sit, jumping along, singing along to that song, going, I'm not sure if he's quite nailed that bass line. So I think he's, a live crowd's very forgiving as well. Absolutely. But then again, I, I reckon there will be one or two stoics in the crowd going, oh, he messed that chord up. It, it must happen, but nowhere around me because everybody around me is always too busy bopping up and down. But to go back, I have always liked this song. Again, being the, the moody teenager that I was, but I found out an interesting fact during the course of this research, and it's just made me really appreciate the song a little bit more. And basically, Simon wrote the song. They had been touring quite a lot. They were starting to get more and more successful. And I guess they were touring the first album. And John Taylor was just totally buying into the rock and roll lifestyle. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll for, for John, I think it was at that point. And Simon was just really, really concerned about him. And he wrote this song as a kind of a... John, we're concerned about you, you know, try to, to rein it in a little bit. And Simon said he, he wrote the lyrics out and he, he shoved it under John's hotel door. John never said anything about that, that note. And they went on to record it. And, you know, I, I think that puts such a, a nice backstory, I think, to that song, which makes it a little bit more interesting to me now, knowing that sort of thing. And I'm not sure... I'm guessing, you know, especially when you read uh, John Taylor's autobiography, I'm not sure if those words quite resonated at the time. Well, why would they? You're living right in the middle of like the best time of your life. Why would you listen to that? It's a hard lesson to learn. Not that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I can hardly say that, uh, that I have lived the life of a rock and roll star. So that is the first side of Rio. What a great album. Now, um, we've had in the previous episodes, Paul, your daughter, Rebecca, has been going through the history of Duran Duran. So here is part three of Duran Duran's history. The story of Duran Duran, part three. Duran Duran's second studio album, Rio, was released worldwide on May the 10th, 1982, and it would prove to be a global success for the band, reaching number two in the UK, number one in Australia and Canada, and eventually hitting number six in the US Billboard chart by the following March after it was remixed and reissued in late 1982. The album's first single had been My Own Way, which was released in November 81, although a re-recorded version ended up on the album. The other singles were Hungry Like the Wolf, Save a Prayer and the title track Rio. While Save a Prayer would get to number two in the UK charts in September 82, becoming the band's biggest hit to date, it was Hungry Like the Wolf which would give them their breakthrough in the United States, along with the videos the band shot in Sri Lanka and Antigua for a number of songs. Those videos received extensive airtime on the new MTV channel in the States. The image on the album's iconic cover was painted by artist Patrick Nagel, while the cover itself was designed by Malcolm Garrett. The nine tracks on the Rio album, from the opening title track all the way through to the chauffeur at the end of the record, showed a band that was continuing to develop and improve, and showcased the collective ability of the band as musicians and songwriters. This is perhaps best illustrated in New Religion, a song with so many layers, both musically and lyrically. Throughout the year, Duran Duran toured the Rio album in the UK and beyond, 
playing to sell-out crowds, and that continued into 1983, during which time the band released the standalone single, Is There Something I Should Know, which gave them their first UK number one. That song subsequently found its way onto the American re-release of their debut album. In 1983, Duran Duran also started writing and recording their third studio album, which would become Seven and the Ragged Tiger. You know, when, when um, prior to recording this, we had a family get-together for our wedding anniversary, so obviously the kids were there and the partners. And I asked Rebecca, has she been listening back to the podcast? And she doesn't, she, because she doesn't like to hear herself. She doesn't like the sound of her own voice. And I was saying, well, it sounds, it sounds really good. And then she said, have I to do it for every single episode? And I said, yes, you do. <laughs> because it was my anniversary, she couldn't say no. Well, firstly, happy anniversary. Thank well you. done. Um, but yeah, I, I I think she's got a brilliant voice and, and I'm enjoying that section of it for sure. So now we're on to uh, the second side of the Rio album and it kicks off with New Religion. This is the song where, see anybody who says to me, who dismisses Duran Duran for either their songs or their songwriting ability or their ability as musicians, I would say to them, just go and listen to New Religion and then come back and talk to me, because that is a, an amazing song. And I kind of said earlier in the podcast, when the album was released, Simon was 23, he was the elder statesman, Roger was 22, John and Andy were 21, and Nick was 19. And the reason I wrote it down, because I thought, how can these guys, these, these are just young men, I mean, Nick's still a teenager, and they write a song like New Religion, which is just extraordinary. And I think... That is, I think because of Save a Prayer, which we're going to talk about as my, my favourite song. But that song, for me, should dismiss anybody who argues against Duran Duran's ability as musicians, as songwriters, as lyricists, as vocalists. I think it's got everything. I see it slightly differently. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny um, because I think it's a brilliant song and I've always enjoyed the, the album version and then during the course of listening to this over the last week or two, I have come across a couple of live versions. And as I'm sure most of you will know, it's kind of a, a person talking to themselves. You've got the one bit where Simon is singing and then the, then the other bit in response is Simon rapping. And live, Simon rapping is just cringeworthy. It, it actually, I think I, I first listened to the live version over the last couple of weeks. And I was like, ooh, I'm not liking that at all. And, and <laughs> no, white men should never rap. <laughs> That's my opinion. But What's then, what about, what, listen, oh, no, 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 no. What about Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby? That is a classic. Uh, <laughs> Come on. I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm not having that. I love that song. Right. We may have to split up now, Paul. That's a serious artistic disagreement, that one. But um, no, I think... The, the album version definitely is an attribute in their musicianship and their ability to remix and produce because the uh, the album one is is a cracking song. The Beastie Boys. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, uh, there was, I stumbled upon a cover version of New Religion. But I don't know if there's been other versions. One was by a band called Jimmy Eat World, which was awful because I think it's such a difficult song 
for me it's so precise. It's obviously they did a lot of work on that. You know, Nick, you can see just so influential, really funky bass in it. That's been probably the highlight for me in terms of listening back through this album is that song in particular. I've really, really enjoyed listening to it. And can I just tell you, we, uh, we went on holiday last year, the year before the pandemic, and we went to Lanzarote in the new year. And at the end of the night, they had a, the hotel had a, a disco and I requested Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby and was up dancing to it. And I was very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ice Ice Baby was a um, good song if you, if you were drunk. But uh, I, I can't, I don't think I would ever call him a real rapper. Anyways, our first disagreement. How shocking. Over vanilla ice. <laughs> the mind boggles. Anyways, next track, Last Chance on the Stairway. Now, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that love to pick apart what the meanings, meaning is behind lyrics and this sort of stuff. And uh, I actually came across a, a website that was trying to uh, decipher what, what Simon was trying to say within this song. And um, going back to my stud muffin reference with Simon, that's pretty much what people were coming up with, that basically he'd been caught cheating and the song was about sexual frustration. So, you know, I know that we, we've kind of talked about Duran Duran coming about when we were teenagers and that sort of thing, but we've never really talked about how it might have informed our, our adult selves and, and that sort of stuff. But, but I think, you know, for me, I, I, can, I can get that. Just the, the vibe of the song is about sexual frustration and, and just having to, to get it all out there. But uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty good tune. And it, it, it is probably, again, defining teenage years and growing up. To go back to your earlier point, I've, I've never really seen Simon Le Bon as a stud muffin, but uh, that, that phrase is going to be stuck in my head now forever. <laughs> it's going to be a literal. Thank you for that. Again, this is another song which I think is right up there with the best songs in the album. I think it's absolutely brilliant and probably could and should have been a single. I tell you one thing I used to do when I was a teenager, prior to learning to play the guitar, decidedly average, I used to have a squash racket. Squash was quite big back in the day. And so I improvised that as a, as a guitar. And when I was just playing the songs in my bedroom and imagining myself as a pop star and like I would have the the squash racket out singing along pretending I was you know like a pop superstar singing Last Chance in the Stairway not bright enough to realise that if I just learned to play the guitar I could have actually done the real thing so so I, I could I, honestly I was I was brilliant on the squash racket playing that song <laughs> Again, it all goes back to the, the different ways that guys and girls listen to music. You know, guys are there standing in front of the mirror doing their rock god guitar arm swing on their squash racket. And girls are staring at the, po at the uh, poster of the album going, oh, he's so dreamy. <laughs> to be fair, there's probably some, some women who are listening to this that will be saying... I was imagining being a pop star as well. Not everybody would have been. No, I, I absolutely concur on that one. There, there'll be plenty of, of women who wanted to be the rock god. But as we have talked about in, in previous podcasts, you seem to think that I have a, a, a desire for the karaoke stage when that ain't the case. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's just, I've never, ever, ever, ever 
thought that, yeah, I could, I could be a pop star or a rock star or anything like that. It was just, that was never it for me. I mean, not that it was ever going to happen, but, but I think I came to play the guitar too late. That You know, that way when you're a teenager, when music is such an obsessive thing and you would, you know, one of my pals learned to play the guitar when he was 16 or 17. And so he, that's all he would do. So as a result, he now his, his quality of his playing is just on a different level to anything that I can, can play. But I think when you were younger, I suppose it's like, a, you know, a lot of people maybe have those dreams, but it doesn't go beyond, as I say, miming to songs playing a squash racket. And then the other people with that drive determination end up forming bands like Duran Duran and doing the real thing. Yeah, and, and what we were talking about before we, we started recording tonight, you know, Duran Duran are a major influence on so many bands these days. You know, we were talking about uh, Brandon Flowers from The Killers. He is blatantly a super fan of, of Duran Duran. So, you know, it definitely, they did inspire a generation of rock gods now that are out there. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's a good thing that takes all sorts. Okay. Now here comes both of our most favorite top number one song of Duran Duran, Save a Prayer. I feel like I, at this point in time, I need to hold, a, hold up a lighter and just kind of wave it in the air. Now I feel so sentimental about this song. Because it's funny, I think this song, to an extent, is, is a kind of renaissance. Because, you know, in the back of, remember the, the, the terrible terrorist attack in Paris? I can't remember offhand the name of the band who did a cover version that was one of the songs that they would do a cover version of and remember their their concert was a was attacked and I think in the back of it became a song of you know hope and unity and solidarity and the sense that what unites us is is more than what divides us and it's such a beautiful song I think for that to be and I'm not sure if it was in the back of that I I remember seeing a, a video of a live concert where it's really just Simon and I'm not sure if maybe Nick and it's a really stripped down acoustic version of that that song. And it's absolutely stunning. And I think it's one of those that it has slightly morphed over the years. Um, if, if you see Duran Duran perform versions of it later on, it's only gotten better somehow. And it just it's just a, a fantastic timeless quality to that one, because I think, you know, if there was somehow a human being on this planet who had never heard that song, and it was played for them tomorrow, I think it, it would be recognised that it would be fresh, even if it was, you know, brand new to them today. The band, as we're speaking there, I just checked it, it was Eagles of Death Metal, was the band, that they, it was their concert was attacked, but I, th- I think they did a, that was a cover version, you know, and I think that was, a, as I say, I think it became a song, kind of like the Oasis Don't Look Back in Anger, became a kind of song of unity in the back of the, you know, the terrible attack in Manchester, that actually sometimes... And it, it kind of that song kind of sprung from just people gathering in Manchester, and some a woman starts singing it, and before you know it, it becomes something as music can do, can bring you together, and the kind of sentiment behind it, and the, the sense that it's something that we all have in common. And I, I just love that about Save a Prayer. I love it about Don't Look Back in Anger. These things out of the most terrible and awful of circumstances, that something can like music can bring people together. And it's interesting that it's it's a a metal band that did this cover version you know so so that just speaks to the quality of the song that if it can be covered by a metal band it was created by a pop band there could probably be a country version out there for all we know but but yeah again it just it speaks on so many different levels so you know it I guess 
that that that, that would be the true definition of an anthem. You know that, that it it can speak over so much time to so many different people for so many different reasons. And just talking mm-hmm. about cover versions, I, I stumbled upon on Spotify a Duran Duran tribute album. So it's like fourteen or fifteen songs covered by different bands and some. I don't know if it's a female artist or a band. Eve's Plum recorded a really kind of quite gentle and soft version of Save a Prayer, which is which is worth checking out. Excellent. I shall add that one to my list. So that takes us then to the last track of the Rio album, The Chauffeur. Well, after the way I was going on about New Religion, and, and we did quite agree, what, what's your thoughts on The Chauffeur then? I love this song. It just, from, from what I understand about it, it was, again, one of those poems that was sitting in um, Simon's book that he brought to the to the audition. But I really feel like um, this was a Nick song. Um, and I think it was this song that he started to use samples. And it was, I think there was a new, uh, I don't know, synthesizer keyboard that had just, had just come out recently. And he started playing around with it. And I think that this song really just kind of defines Nick's production capabilities. I think it is just so evocative of the time I, I always think of the uh, the black and white video in kind of a um, film noir look to it all very very stylish and again I think it's just very much a Duran Duran sound and it's it's not the poppy bouncy sunshine of Rio or hunger like the wolf but I still think this kind of harks back to I think the first album a little bit more moody and again the just the black and white feel to it you know like i often say that the first track in an album is quite important to me i also think the last track and i think sometimes bands there's sometimes you listen to an album where sometimes you kind of kind of run out of ideas or energy so sometimes the album ends with a whimper rather than a bang and tel aviv for the first album kind of did that to me i felt the chauffeur with this album is Amazing, and I wrote down. I thought I think Nick is amazing on this song, but I also think Simon's vocals are absolutely brilliant. Really, really stand out. It was interesting. I'd again just I hadn't really come across it much. There's a there's an acoustic blue silver version of the the song where Andy's playing an acoustic guitar over it, which is a really again really stripped back guitar based version of the song, which is really great. And also on that covers album that I was talking about a band called the Deftones do a version of Chauffeur which is brilliant as well. But I think what we listen to at the end of the album, to me that when you get to the, that last song and you hear that and get, you get to the end of it and you think, I've just listened to something special in terms of the whole album. That it starts with Rio, goes all the way through all those songs and finishes with something like that. And you think, that's impressive. Absolutely. And, and you know, this has to be the reason why this album appeared for both of us in our eight album choices of our lives because, you know, I think we beg to differ on our opinions on, on one or two of the songs kind of thing. But in general, we just love this album. And when I was um, speaking to my friends, uh, telling them that that we were going to be doing this recording of Rio, a couple of them actually said, you know, I was never a big Duran Duran fan, but I recognized all of these songs on this album. So they obviously had it in their repertoire, you know, back in the day. So, yeah, it's just 
whilst we we consider ourselves Duran Duran fans, I think it's just people who are fans of music just love this album. What we wanted to include now within the podcast are um, some of the top threes that, that some of the podcast listeners have have actually posted into us. We've had interviews with with David Oric, uh, guy fans of Duran, and we've heard from Scott his top three. But now we've got um, another top three choices from one of our Scottish listeners, Lindsay Scott. My name is Lindsay Scott. I'm from Dundee in Scotland, hence the accent. Been a fan of Duran Duran since 1985 when A View to a Kill was released. Prior to that, I quite liked the, the band, but um, the poster boy image did put me off, I have to say. So basically, um, I've actually changed my top three since I tweeted, slightly. My favourite song is still Ordinary World. It's got very strong lyrics. I really like the emotion of the song. Excellent guitar solo by Warren. No wonder it won an Ivan Novello song award, because it's got so much melody. I mean, there's so many changes to the, to the song. Um, I just think it's an excellent piece of work. My second favourite, still, I haven't changed this one, is the number 30 single from 1989. I can't believe it only got to number 30. Do You Believe in Shame? Um, the song, of course, was about um, the death of a friend. It's a very sad song. I just loved it the moment I heard it. I just felt that I really liked the atmosphere of the song. It was a moody kind of song. I just really liked it. A real change for the band. Um, it wasn't really a classic Duran Duran style of single, um, probably why it didn't get that high, but I really liked it and I just felt Simon's voice came over like he really was so um, upset about his friend passing away. Um, I just really liked the song. And the one I've changed actually is number three. Um, probably actually after listening to the podcast there, um, I've opted for Planet Earth because really it, it is a great song. I mean, the drums on it are excellent. It's got a really, really strong bass as well, um, and I just love the atmospheric keyboards. I just think it's a great track. It was very futuristic then, and it still sounds futuristic now. Um, these, of course, could change tomorrow, but uh, that's what I'm going with. I hope it's okay. Thanks very much. So, Paul, obviously we have been going through our impressions and research on the, the Rio album, but uh, you've had a, a chance to interview a lady by the name of Annie Zaleski, who is, is it just tomorrow, I think her, her book is being released, 33 and a third. That is um, an in-depth look on the Rio album, and it includes uh, chats and interviews with the band. I'm quite excited about it coming out. I've pre-ordered it, although I think the physical copy of the book comes out in the States before it comes out in the UK. So I'll, I might have to wait a bit longer. But it is, as you say, it's an in-depth look at the album, not only musically, but she's based in the States. So I think she looks at the whole, the kind of visual side, the videos, kind of what you've been saying about it as well. And as you say, she, she speaks to the band and gets their thoughts on it. So, yeah, this is just a wee, what we're going to do, I think similar to when we did the interview with David, is we'll just do a wee clip. And then what we'll do is we'll we'll stick up the full interview with Annie as a bonus episode that people can 
listen to to what she's got to say about the book. And then also she, at the end of that interview, she chooses her top three as, as well. So it was just quite interesting to hear. Annie Zaleski, award-winning author, editor, journalist, and author of the new book on Duran Duran's Rio album on the 33 and a third imprint from Bloomsbury. Welcome to the Duran Duran Albums podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. And I have to say, I know we started we were chatting before I started recording, this for me is one of the most eagerly anticipated books of the year. Once I saw the publicity about it, and I, I just love the whole idea of you writing a book on for me, what is one of the, the certainly the, the album of the 80s, but one of my favorite albums. I love hearing that because I, it, it's been really um, illuminating and gratifying and, you know, even a little overwhelming just to kind of see people's reactions to it. You know, I've had some people reach out telling me personal stories, you know, their relation to the album. You know, I've heard people, so many people say, this is the first record I ever bought. You know, I've had so many people say, I'm so glad that Duran Duran's finally getting their due. I'm so glad that people are recognizing this album. You know, it feels like, and, I, and I'm a longtime fan too, but it really feels like it's, you know, I, I feel like this is like a triumph for fans too, you know, because I think being a Duran Duran fan, sometimes you tell people that and they're just like, they give you a look and they're like, really? <laughs> you know, and true fans are just like, I know what's really up, you know, but, uh, you know, I think it's a really kind of a mark of, you know, it's a badge of honor that's saying, hey, you know, this band is important. This band's music is important. This band's music is good. And this band's music deserves to be examined in, in a way, in a really, you know, thoughtful, analytical way. I'm, I'm thrilled that I was able to kind of do that with the book and dive into it. That's one of the things that I've always argued for. And, and like you, I've probably had the same reaction from people over the years when you say that's your favorite band. I've always felt they're underestimated and, and underappreciated as songwriters and as musicians. And, you know, the very fact that we're talking 40 years after they started releasing albums, to me, is testament to their ability as musicians. I am nodding vigorously right now to every word you just said, because it's true. You know, I mean, there in the 80s, you know, there were so many great bands, and but there were a lot of bands who were great singles bands. And, you know, they had some really sparkling songs and, you know, they were on the, you know, they were on top of the pops, they were on the charts and they had, you know, their shining moments, but then they couldn't sustain it for an entire record and they couldn't sustain it over you know, more than a couple of years. Duran Duran not only had these fully formed universes on their albums, including Rio, but you're right, 40 years later, we're still talking about this. You know, they're playing Hyde Park next summer. You know, they're still in America. They're still touring sheds with Chic, you know, which are like, you know, 20,000 seat places. And I see younger people too really get into the band, which is also really gratifying. And that doesn't happen with a lot of 80s bands either. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned that the book that you've written on Rio is coming out and it's a kind of imprint. It's like 33 and a third books and it's basically writers take one album and, as you say, dissect it in a really analytical way. And I suppose that's the challenge for you, probably as a writer as much as a fan, because you're then having to really focus on that one album and tell your story, but tell a story as well that will resonate. And that's very true. And, you know, I mean, luckily, um, Rio has a good story in general. You know, there's this sort of, you know, there's a story about the band recording it at Air Studios and, you know, the songwriting and putting everything together. But there's also the story about how it became a success. And, you know, there's the, the you know, Duran Duran were such video mavens. They were so good at using visuals and using, you know, kind of, a, you know, the visual aesthetic to kind of also help 
promote the band and enhance their music. And so, you know, a lot of the book also examines that and examines them making the music videos. And then this, you know, the third story beyond that is in America, you know, Rio was not popular at first. You know, Rio came out and, you know, Duran Duran had had some popularity from their first album, but they were still like, uh, you know, still kind of a cultish sort of band almost, which is hard to think about now. And so I talked to a lot of people to figure out, you know, Hungry Like the Wolf was their first big hit here. And it was a big hit in early 1983, when in England, it was a hit in like May and June of 1982. So it took a little longer for Duran Duran to kind of pick up here. And so, you know, there, there's that story too. And it's kind of, a, you know, an underdog story does good. You know, there was a success and then they had American success in it, you know, and it put them on a global level and the rest is history, as they say. And so there's a lot of really interesting threads surrounding the album as well. I think that make it a really compelling piece of music, really. What we were talking about um, before we started recording tonight, we've had you know some, some great feedback from uh, listeners of the podcast. So please do keep it coming. Send it into the email or, or post something up on Twitter for us. Uh, that would be great and, and much appreciated. But we've had a lot of American voices. Um, I know that Duran Duran were absolutely massive over in America, so keep it coming. But come on, you Brits, let's hear your opinions. I want to hear your top three as well. Well, as you say, that the more we've got, we've got one. Obviously, Lindsay's from Dundee, so it was nice to hear a fellow Scot talking about his top three. Then we've got uh, another listener who is going to be in the next episode, and he's from from England. But anybody, anywhere, if you want to. Even if you email us, Duran Duran at paulcuddehy.com, and then we can kind of correspond. And what people have been doing is then just recording, doing a wee voice, recording on the phone and sending us that. And then we can we can put that onto the podcast. It's brilliant. I think it's been brilliant just the, the way that people have kind of taken to it. It's been really, it's been one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this. And I've enjoyed the, the passion that people have felt, you know, with um, with Scott having that that conversation um, and him taking the time to record his top three, but also then he he got involved in our debate around instrumentals and that sort of thing. So please, if there's if there's something that you want us to talk about, is there something I should know? <laughs> I see. What you did, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I did that, but uh, yeah, please do do feed it back to us. You know, always <laughs> always happy to have a a lively debate. We don't always have to agree, do we? <laughs> Well, you know, I think the two things, I, I thought what I would take away from this episode of the podcast is just like a greater appreciation of Rio. But the two things I've taken away is obviously one is I've just outed myself as a Vanilla Ice fan. <laughs> but then from now from now until all eternity, every time I hear the, the name of Simon LeBond, I'm just going to hear your voice going, Simon's a stud muffin. Please, 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 somebody get this podcast to, uh, to Duran Duran so that Paul can meet Simon and I can just watch that interaction. <laughs> <laughs> and I will deny all knowledge that I actually said that, called him that. <laughs> it's, going to, it's going to be out on the air for everybody to, to hear. It's going to haunt me. That's okay. I stand by it. He is a stud muffin. Always was, always will be. There you go. <laughs> well, I think on that, that, that note is probably the best. And I suppose the next one... Almost as, as soon as we've finished this, then it just it gives us an excuse to to start listening to to Seven and the Ragged Tiger. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. So again, um, if you guys want to have a listen to Seven and the Ragged Tiger yourself, if you have any thoughts on it, please do email us, send us a, a tweet. Please do get involved. It would be great. And I'm I'm looking forward to 
to listening to that album again, I think I have a feeling my opinions might have changed a little bit now as 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 I've gotten older on this album. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what it what it uh, brings up for me. Excellent, I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at albumsduran or email us at durandoran at paulcarahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound. Thank you.